I on? Can y'all hear me? We good? If I can take a second for a personal uh, indulgence, uh, David Slade, one of the seniors in our youth group, begged me for a shout out today. And the only reason I want to give him a shout out, he left for vacation yesterday. The only reason I want to give him a shout out is because he promised me, even though he's not here, that he would listen to this on the website. Uh, I don't believe him. So uh, I'm going to give him a shout out only because I don't believe that he's going to listen. So I appreciate that. Now back to your regularly scheduled program. All right, so this summer we are looking at uh, some of the shorter books of the Bible, um, the minor prophets and also the one-chapter books in the New Testament. Um, And today we're going to be looking at probably the most familiar minor prophet of all, which is Jonah. Um, I thought about showing the VeggieTales movie. I decided not to, um, even though I think they did as good a job as I can do. Um, But anyway... um, So we're going to look at Jonah today. It's a familiar story. It's one that I think most people know if you grew up anywhere near Sunday school or VBS. It's a very popular VBS um, book. Um, What I love about Jonah is that it is so vivid in its imagery and its characters that I think it's actually one of the books that's perhaps made for film as much as anything else. You've got a relatable surface hero who, although he's at the center of the climactic moments in the book, is kind of brought down by his own foibles, his own personal shortcomings. You've got uh, imagery and, and, and big moments that bring the viewer from kind of the heights of just amazement to the depths of just complete disgust and despair. But at the center of the story, you have the actual hero who represents absolute good triumphing over evil and what is just an absolutely beautiful message. And so I want us to focus on what the point of the book of Jonah is this morning. I'm going to take us through the narrative, kind of three of the four main pieces of the narrative. We're going to look this morning at Jonah on the run. We're going to look at Jonah in the belly of the fish. And then we're going to look at Jonah outside the city. Um, The Bible is amazing with the way that it communicates different things about God in its books. And the books of the minor prophets are incredible because what they communicate is that a God that communicates with ordinary people like you and I, is a God who not only can be known personally, but a God who wants to be. A God who delights in being known personally. That's what the minor prophets convey to us, and that's why they are just so incredibly beautiful. And so this morning we're going to look at Jonah. Um, I uh, took little snippets throughout the book, so I have kind of a long kind of introductory passage, and I just wanted to give us kind of a taste of what the book's all about. So I'm going to read a little bit from each chapter Um, and uh, then I'll pray, and then we'll we'll jump into it together. So starting at chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll I'll guide us through from there. So Jonah 1.1, this is uh, God's word to us this morning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. We'll skip down to verse 11. Then they, those are the sailors on the boat, said to Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. 
For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come near you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now we'll skip down to chapter 2, verse 7. This is part of Jonah's prayer as he's in the belly of the fish. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What, have I, vow- what, ha- what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Skipping to verse, or chapter, one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And then skipping down to verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, for which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let me pray for us. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Our Father and our God, we pray this morning that we would be transformed by the gospel message, not as a people who are perishing, but instead of people that are alive in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Open our hearts this morning to the gospel that we might be transformed. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we have this story of Jonah. I tried to give a good snapshot of kind of the entire narrative, um, and, and that was kind of my goal as we looked at it together, because I wanted everybody to kind of be on the same uh, level when it came to knowing sort of what happens in Jonah. It starts off with verse 2, which is one of, I think, one of the most intimidating verses in the entire Bible. God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You cannot possibly understand the story of Jonah until you understand what God was really asking Jonah to do in this verse. This was intimidating because Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which is known in world history as being one of the most brutal people to ever walk the face of the earth. There is ancient art that depicts the ancient Assyrians in their conquests practicing genocide. There's ancient art that depicts them actually, and I'm sorry for the... the, disturbing imagery, but taking infants out of mother's hands and physically crushing them in front of them just to kind of show their dominance. 
As one author put it, this was Nazi Germany with the volume turned up. That's what Nineveh is. That's what Nineveh is all about. And I hope we can understand how important that is because in order to understand why this is such a crazy request from God, we have to understand how brutal the Assyrians are. Remember, Jonah's an Israelite, and yes, he is a prophet, but he's still an Israelite. And the Assyrians were looming large over Israel at this point. And in, in, in fact, later on we learn uh, in, in the books of the Minor Prophets and in Kings and Chronicles that the Assyrians conquer Israel. They're looming large as this great threat to his people. And God says, hey, Jonah, I want you, ordinary guy, prophet, to go into this brutal city and tell them what they're doing is wrong and that the wrath of a God they don't believe in is coming on, on, on upon them. That's what he tells Jonah to do. Can you imagine the thoughts that are racing through Jonah's head when he hears this request from God? Jonah, go into Nineveh, this incredibly brutal city, and tell them that they are wrong and that they're going to die at the hands of a God they don't believe in. But a God you do believe in, to make it even better. Imagine that. And so why does Jonah flee? He's a prophet. Why does he flee? And we're going to look at Jonah on the run. The answer is given to us right in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah says that he knows that God is a God of gracious mercy. He is a God uh, that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knows exactly what he's doing when he flees. He knows that God is going to forgive the Ninevites. And the last thing he wants to do is to see Nineveh prosper. In fact, he'd rather see Nineveh wiped out. This is incredibly understandable. Our first instinct is kind of look down our nose at this prophet who flees and disobeys God. But imagine, put yourself in his shoes and understand exactly what God was asking Jonah to do. You would have run away too, and so would I. I run away when God just asked me to share the gospel with a friend or a cousin. Imagine if God told you to go into Nineveh. But I want us to understand that because I think it's at the very heart of what our sinful nature is all about. This idea of disobedience. At the heart of temptation and sin, from the Garden of Eden on throughout the Bible we see in humankind, and we can understand this because we're part of it, is this idea that at the heart of temptation and sin, the very question is, is God for my good? Is God indeed a good God? Is God's will good for me? Because the number one tool of the devil, the number one tool of Satan is to plant that little seed of doubt, is to make you wonder, is God really good? And we often look at obedience as being a really, really good thing until it rubs against something that makes us uncomfortable. Obedience is great until it rubs at your social standing. Obedience is great until it runs at your politics. Obedience is great until it runs at your beliefs as to how to raise your family. Obedience is a great thing until it rubs against what makes you comfortable. And I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves this morning. Where do we compromise when it comes to the will of God? Where do we compromise when it comes to obeying God? Where, do we, where are we compromising? Are we compromising in being a people that are commanded to make gossip stop with us, and yet not doing that because we don't want to be awkward? We don't want to commit social suicide? Is that where we compromise? Are you compromising in terms of kind of your Judeo-Christian morals and this kind of conservative political or liberal political, whichever side of the coin you fall on, it's not about politics, but like, the, like, are you so comfortable with that that when God commands you to do something that rubs up against that, you compromise? Jonah does exactly what we so often do, which is we disobey, but we wrap it in a pretty package. We put it in comfortable terms. We don't say, yeah, I'm disobeying God and I'm proud of it. What we say is, no, I'm a patriot. No, I am a 
family man. No, I'm a sports fan. Whatever it is that you wrap it in. None of those things bad. I'm not trying to, certainly not downgrading sports. Anybody knows me knows that. (laughs) But I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but when you disobey God and you wrap it in a package that's pretty, we're we're able to justify it, and that's exactly what Jonah's doing. I'm not a slave to this. I just really love that. We're able to talk ourselves into disobedience. It's the sin beneath all other sin. And that's the fight that's going on within Jonah. So let's look at now Jonah in the belly of the fish. I'm moving us rather quickly. I don't want to look at all the details in the narrative. I want us to really get an understanding more of the characters of Jonah and God. Uh, the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 in the book of Jonah are, are the most famous kind of passages in this book. Um, Jonah is on a boat with kind of pagan sailors, and a big storm happens, and they're asking Jonah kind of, what's up with the storm? How do we get out of this? And Jonah nonchalantly just says, yeah, throw me into the sea. Throw me into the sea. I would rather see me die than Nineveh prosper, so throw me into the sea. I don't care. So eventually they do because they believe that that's what they need to do, and sure enough, when they hurl Jonah into the sea, the storm stops. Sure enough. And then Jonah gets eaten by a gigantic fish, mostly categorized as a whale, Scripture just says big fish, so we'll stick with that. But I don't want you to miss the amazing transformation that takes place in chapter 2, because it really is incredible. Uh, One theologian said about the book of Jonah, people spend so much time looking hard at the great fish that they completely miss the great God. So don't do that. Don't miss the great God, because what's amazing in chapter 2 is that God is so compassionate and so patient with Jonah He takes Jonah to a place where he is utterly helpless. He takes Jonah to the very bottom, and what happens in the heart of Jonah is an amazing transformation. Amazing transformation. A second ago, Jonah's running away because he hates the Ninevites, and he does not want to do what God wants to say because he cannot have compassion upon them. And just one chapter later, because of what happens in this transformation, because he sees God's compassion and his need for mercy and grace, He ends chapter 9 by saying, and he ends his prayer by saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's essentially saying it's not about me anymore. Jonah's brought to a place of utter amazement because he realizes it's not him who's doing any of this. It's not him who's responsible for any of this. It is God who is bountiful in his compassion and his mercy and his patience, and there is nobody on earth he's been more patient with than Jonah. And the question we have is an application question that we should be asking ourselves is, have you been amazed by God's patience with you? Not just are you aware of it, not just kind of academically are you able to say, yeah, God is full of grace and that's awesome. Are you amazed by the grace and the patience that God has shown you? Is it astounding to you? Because what we see in Jonah in chapter 2 is that his heart is gripped by this idea. He's amazed. He's blown away. His heart is gripped, and so much so that he transforms in a second, in a heartbeat. All those prejudices and selfishness he showed in the previous chapter are instantly gone because his heart is gripped by the grace and the mercy of God. That's amazing. But are you there? The number one indicator of this, for those of you who are looking for a self-test, is how do you treat other people? Not just your own people, but other people. You ever wonder why we so relish holding grudges with people? Not only do we hold grudges, we love it. Love holding grudges. We're so thin-skinned. We're so uh, just completely uncomfortable with criticism of any kind. We don't treat people with dignity and love as we should. 
It comes down to you. Do you understand the patience and the mercy that God has shown you? I confess to you that I don't do this very well, as many of you know. If you're in my youth group, you know this well. There's nobody that does more poorly when he's in a bad mood than Taylor Housman. But that's the message of Jonah. Are you amazed by God's patience with you? Because what we see at the center of the story is a God who is rich in compassion and mercy. Not a God of wrath and anger, as he's often characterized in the Old Testament, but we see a God of compassion and mercy. We'll get more into that later. The other thing that we see, which is not the main point, but is pretty astounding when you break it down, is that God's even compassionate in his sovereignty. Notice that nothing happens in the story of Jonah without it saying, God ordained dot, dot, dot. God ordains the fish. God ordains the storm. God ordains the fish to vomit. God ordains the, the, uh, the repentance of the Ninevites. God, orda- God ordains the, the, uh, the, the, the plant at the end in chapter 4. God ordains everything. At the heart of this story is a God who not only is gracious and full of compassion, but a God who is in complete control. He's at the command. There's no plan B with God. He's going to get Jonah to Nineveh. Spoiler alert. Jonah's going to get there because there's no plan B with God. And so much of our lives is wrapped up in this idea. Even Christians, even the longest, uh, the, the people that have been Christians the longest that I know are constantly anxious because we believe this lie that we are in charge of our own world. This is my world. And no, God comes along in the Bible and he says, stop it. This is my father's world. That's what, the heart, that's what your heart should be singing. This is my father's world. God is in complete control. And therefore, we do not need to be that anxious. We don't need to be anxious at all because God is working for our good. He's even using your screw-ups and your evil and your wickedness and your shortcomings and your wrong decisions to do something incredibly beautiful, something more beautiful than you can even imagine. Ricky Jones, who's a pastor in Tulsa, used this as what I think is just one of the best illustrations I've ever heard. In 1980, uh, in the 1980s, which I was born in 1988, uh, so I don't want to sound like I was like personally you know, vis- viewing this. Many of you were, though. Um, still the young, cool youth guy, despite what my high schoolers would say. In the 1980s, there was a huge push in this country to put a permanent end to pornography. Many of you remember this. There was a huge push to put an end to pornography. It is something that has ripped apart the lives of families and of individuals for years. And there was a push to put an end to it. And then something happened that was the complete opposite of that, which was the Internet. The Internet became a thing. Now, for a couple decades, the only business that made money from the Internet was pornography. In fact, there are scholars and books that have been written about this one theory that the Internet probably doesn't get off the ground and become the thing that it is today without the adult entertainment industry. The research, the development, the resources that were poured in, the Internet probably does not become what it is today without that. In the present, though, as we flip to 2017, we can look at it from the other direction and realize that the Internet has been used to reach more people with the gospel and in more creative ways than could have ever been thought previously. Thousands upon thousands have come to faith in Jesus Christ and have received and understood eternal life because of the creativity used on the internet. Think about it for a second. Do you think Jesus was up there wringing his hands saying, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do about this porn thing? No. Even the internet, which was arguably 
We can have that argument another time, but arguably it, it only became a thing, the thing that it is today because of probably the most evil thing that we have in our, in our society. Even that, God is using it to advance the kingdom. Even that, God is using to bring sinners to himself. The kingdom is an unstoppable force, and at the center of it is a God who is in complete control. The Bible tells us that if, if we are with King Jesus, our lives are taken care of. We don't need to worry. Because God is even using the worst decisions we've ever made. God is even using the moments that we would least like to talk about if pressed. He's using that to weave something beautiful out of it. The question is, are you with King Jesus? Are you with King Jesus this morning? Because it's a beautiful thought when you get into that. The story advances, and I'm not going to go into it too much because we are, we are, we are, I don't want to run short on time. We see Jonah eventually begrudgingly go to Nineveh. He does the bare minimum. This is not a like happy, joyful, I just got vomited up by a fish, now I'm going to go do something amazing, Jonah. No. He goes in and does the bare minimum, an eight-word sermon. That's what Jonah does. And I know many of you, as you reflect upon Camper and Dennis and, and I and others, here in the pulpit, an eight-word sermon sounds like music to your ears, but stay with me. <laughs> Something amazing happens, though, after Jonah's little half-effort eight-word sermon thing. The entire city of Nineveh, the most brutal, evil city that had ever walked the face of the earth, every single person in that city repents and believes the gospel. And God's wrath is relenting. That's amazing. It's the greatest revival in the history of the world. And it all comes from Jonah's little eight-word sermon. The greatest revival that has ever taken place. But I don't want to spend too much time on that, even though it is significant. That's a whole other sermon. Let's go into chapter 4, though, because what we see in Jonah's reaction is that he's anything but amazed at what God's just done. He's just seen a miracle take place in front of him. And what's the first thing that verse 1 says? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Oh, Jonah. Oh, Jonah. Jonah has what we would call in modern Christian terminology as a major backslide. I hate the word backslide, but I'm going to use it here because Jonah has a major backslide. Jonah, who has just spent the night in the belly of a fish, he just did this huge journey, uh, three days journey into Nineveh. He's seen God do amazing things to forgive and, uh, and show mercy to the Ninevites. And what is, it, what, what is the net net of all that is that Jonah is displeased greatly. Major backslide. I think it's amazing, but at the same time, I think about myself, and I don't think it's quite as amazing. And I think about other people. I think about the youth that, I'm, that, I am, uh, that are, have been brought into my care, and I don't think it's that amazing um, that Jonah backslides. Um, some of you might be reading it, freaking out, saying, I thought Jonah was a believer. I thought Jonah was a prophet. He's a character in the Bible. He made it into that book. How did he make it into that book? But then he backslides so greatly. I can tell you this morning that if you have this idea that Christians are any better than anybody else, you either don't understand Christianity at all or you have a very immature view of what our faith is all about. Because what happens in Jonah, this great transformation takes place. What's happened in Jonah, this man who does believe that God is a God full of mercy and abounding in love, what happens is that Jonah does backslide. And why? Because sin is still very much a thing. 
Sin is still very much a thing. When you and I place our faith in Jesus and our hearts are changed by the gospel, the Bible says we are completely forgiven. The Spirit of God lives in us. Legally and virtually, we are a new creation. However, we still live in this awkwardness of what theologians call the already but not yet. Sinful lifestyle, sinful nature, still very much is a part of our everyday journey. Still every part of our everyday life. Sin has been greatly wounded. But as many of you know, nothing on earth fights harder than a wounded animal. And sin's going to fight back as hard as it can. Downplaying the fact that that, is a, that that exists and pretending like sin doesn't affect you as much as other people, pretending like sin doesn't affect Christians as much as it does other people, belittles the power of sin and in some way belittles the power of the gospel as well because you're no longer admitting your need for it. The reality is that we are a people that are still very much in need of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, not only on a daily basis, but on an hourly basis. We are still very much a people in need of that. And what that should do is drive us to a place of showing other people mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness, no matter what their situation is, whether they deserve it or not. What it should drive us to do is that. Instead, what it does so often is that it puffs us up. It makes us feel like we have found the... the, the, jewels in, the, in the, the treasure chest that other people just haven't quite found yet. It causes us to look down on other people who don't know as much as we do. And it gives our sinful natures, which again are still very much a thing, permission to bring back our old prejudices and selfishness. Is that where you are this morning? Professing Christian, are you looking down on other people who are not Christians? Are you looking down on other Christians who aren't where you are? Is that where you are? Because what the gospel should do is drive you to mercy and compassion and forgiveness because that's what you've been shown. And again, it gets back to that question. Are you amazed by that? Towards the end of the book, we continue to see God's compassion on Jonah uh, in the face, even in the face of this backslide and this failure of his. And then we get to verse 11, which I think is one of the most curious, intriguing, and I think really one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. Jonah ends on a question that was not a misprint in your Bibles. Verse 12 did not get chopped off throughout the time in history. No, it ends on a question. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? I still get goosebumps when I read that verse. It's when you start to, start to dig into it. Why does God mention that there's cattle there? Have you ever wondered that? Why does God mention that? And also much cattle, by the way. A pastor, Brian Sorgenfry, who I um, have, uh, with, with permission, have taken a lot for the sermon from, um, he says it's like God is a God who is looking for excuses to dole out mercy and compassion. The reason he mentions the cattle is because he's a God that's looking for excuses to do it. The word pity here literally means to have tears in one's eyes. God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, you are mad. You're mad because I spared an entire city that you hate. But Jonah, the problem here is not what the Ninevites have done. The problem here is that you have forgotten who I am. You've forgotten who I am. You've forgotten that your only hope, Jonah, in this life is that I pitied you and gave you immense grace. 
It's your only hope, and it was Nineveh's only hope. Your only hope is that I look for excuses to give mercy. I look for excuses to lavish you in my compassion. God hates what sin has done to us. God hates what sin has done to you and what it is doing to you. God hates what sin has done to his world and our community and our church. God hates it. Do you have a category for that God? A God that hates your sin more than you do? Because that's the God that's communicating in in verse 11. A God that is literally weeping over the sin of Nineveh, the city that's committed so many atrocities. A God who was literally weeping over the sins committed by Jonah, his prophet. That's the God of the Bible. Do you have a category for that God? God is so compassionate and so good. Think about it for a second in verse 11. How ridiculous is this statement? Should I not weep over this city? They're ripping their lives apart. They're in over their heads because of sin. But there's cattle there. I can't destroy it. There's cattle there. That's essentially what verse 11 says. It's crazy. But God is a God who is so much of compassion and mercy and love that he is willing to even use the cattle as an excuse to dole it out. That's incredible. The God of the Old Testament and the God of Jonah and the God of the Bible is one who overwhelms everybody he comes in contact with, not with his justice and his wrath, but with his love, his mercy, and his compassion. Overwhelming. One of my less than proud moments was when I stopped off on MTV about five years ago, and I watched an episode of a show called My Super Sweet Sixteen. For those of you who remember this show, it is one of those reality shows that is so unnerving, so disgusting, and so terrible, you literally cannot take your eyes off it. (laughs) The reality TV industry has been grown out of this, this idea that we're going to make something so disturbing that you can't look away. It's a car wreck, basically, on TV. The premise of my Super Sweet 16 is that these families who are radically wealthy have a daughter who's turning 16, and she wants the most elaborate party ever because, of course, the 16th birthday is the most exciting thing that will ever happen, ever. (laughs) And so they buy this girl like a $10,000 dress, and on the episode I saw, Bon Jovi played for the... uh, for the Sweet 16 party. I would have thought they would have gotten somebody a little more cool than Bon Jovi to play for the Sweet 16, but whatever. Um, To each his own. One of the more disgusting parts of the show is that the girl continually comes into the office where her dad with this bottomless bank account is sitting, and she's like, Dad, I need such and such. Dad, I need this. Dad, I need that. It's all completely unnecessary stuff, by the way. But the dad continues to pull out the wallet, open it up, and hand her cash and cash and cash. It's unnerving, and it's disgusting, but the dad wants to spoil his daughter so much. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not, like, you know, advertising this as the lifestyle, even if you have a lot of money. Um, But understand that as we read the Bible, as we read the story of Jonah, as we read about this God, that's exactly what God is. This dad who has an undeserving child who continually comes and asks him and asks him and asks him and God just continues to give and to give and to give and to give not because he has to not because uh, not because it's just a something that as his godly duty he does no it's because he delights in it he delights in it it makes him more and more excited every time he gets to do it 
God is a God that has bottomless pockets of mercy and grace, and he just wants to spoil us. He just wants to spoil us with that mercy and grace. And that's the God we see in Jonah. Nothing delights God more than when we come and we ask for it. Nothing delights God more. Have you thought about that with God? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus says, and he talks about the joy and the delight and almost like a party atmosphere every time one sinner comes and repents. That's the, that's the God of the Bible. That's the beauty. God wants to spoil you, and he says, come and ask. I love it. Jonah's a beautiful story of God's grace and compassion. Nobody cares about cattle. Sorry if you're a cattle fan, but nobody cares about cattle. But God uses that as his excuse to dole out mercy and love. That's incredible. But what the verse 11 and what the entire book of Jonah is really communicating from God is that, yes, I am a God of great mercy and compassion, and I want to spoil you with it, and I want to lavish you with it. But you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. Centuries later, God is so compassionate, the same God is so loving and merciful, that he would rather see Jesus destroyed on the cross, obliterated on the cross, than see you or I perish. That's the message of the gospel. He would rather see the perfect and holy Son of God embarrassed, stripped naked, put up on a cross, beaten to within an inch of his life, and hanging there for people to mock and make fun of and just completely get ripped apart in one of the most brutal deaths ever. He would rather see that than see you or I perish. And no matter what your take on Christians is or the church is or on God himself is, no matter what your questions are, and I'm not diminishing those questions. Questions are good. But are we thinking of God in those terms? A God that hates your sin so much that he would rather destroy Jesus than see you die because of it. He wants to spoil you with his compassion and his mercy. The lie that we so often believe is that God's mercy and his grace is going to run out. So we better earn it. You better get to stepping. You better start working hard. You better start praying more. You better start... Uh, showing off to everybody how just perfect and, 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 and awesome of a Christian you are. You better stop telling people about your weakness. You better start pretending that you have no weakness because that is not a Christian thing. You're not allowed to have weakness because Jesus has made you strong. That, that is, we, belie, we believe the lie. Believe the lie. What God is saying in Jonah and in the Bible is that no, you don't get it. Stop it. Stop doing that. I delight in showing you mercy. He says it in Malachi over and over again. The more you come to me, the more you ask for mercy and forgiveness, the more it revs me up. It, I delight in it. I delight in it. Come to me. It makes God love you, but not because you're coming and not because you're good. It makes God love you because God just loves you. Because you're his creation. Even the Ninevites, the most brutal people in the history of the world, God loved them too much to see them perish. And then centuries later, he sends Jesus to die because he loves us too much to see us perish. This is a God of second, third, and one million chances. His grace and mercy will never run out. The question is for you this morning is God boring to you? Is God boring? 
Sometimes we get so in the church mode and the Sunday school mode and the youth group mode and the, like we get so much in this mode of like, okay, I'm just here on Sunday morning. It's too early. I need more coffee. Um, I would rather be somewhere else, but I'm here because I have to be. And it's just boring. It's just not fun. If God's boring to you, all I can tell you is that you've forgotten the incredible riches of his mercy and grace. You've forgotten it. Go back to God. Say, show it to me. I ask for your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness. I need thee every hour. Go back to God. You've forgotten the riches of his mercy and grace. Sin is either a burden to you, or it's the very thing that Jesus delights in forgiving. It's the very thing that delights Jesus to forgive. I'll close with this quote from John Newton. Uh, he wrote Amazing Grace, and he's one of the more famous theologians um, of our time. Great story, by the way. If you don't know about John Newton, uh, at the very least, go on Wikipedia and read about him. If you have more time, grab a biography. You know. John Newton said this about heaven. There's three things I'm convinced will surprise me about heaven. First, that there are people there that I never thought would be there that are. Secondly, there are people who I always thought would be there that aren't. But the greatest surprise of all is that I will actually be there. I'll actually be there. No wonder he wrote Amazing Grace. That is a man who understood his need. But more than understanding his need, he loved Jesus. And he loved the mercy of God. That was John Newton. So what's the requirement? What's the requirement of us? What's the challenge? What's the, what's the call? The challenge from a, for us is to come to him. Go to God with your need. Go to God with your mess. Admit that you have it first and then go to God with it. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you're too prideful to do that. You think that you are too good to need it. Some of you are too shameful to do it, which is just a twisted form of pride. You're saying that your sin and your, your issues are too great for Jesus to do anything with. Are you going to come to him with your need and your mess? Because all I can tell you is this. The God of Jonah pitied the city of Nineveh. He pitied the 120,000 people that didn't know their right hand from their left, and he also pitied the cattle. Let me pray for us. Father, we, in this time, in this moment, we ask that you would just overwhelm us with your mercy and your compassion. Father, we are a people that are in desperate need of your grace, of your mercy, of your forgiveness. Whether we realize it or not, we're in desperate need of it. Father, we ask that you would just lavish us with that. You would just absolutely spoil us with your mercy and your compassion. That we would just be gripped in our hearts when we see the level of patience and love and compassion and grace that you have for us. And understanding that that never runs out. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.